there's a lot of hype going on about quantum computing. And that's why I was really fascinated to understand what the whole deal is with this quantum computing. Quantum computing is said to be able to solve problems that the computers that we're currently using today can't solve, like rare diseases, being able to make machine learning innovations because of the increased speed in these computations. So I wanted to figure out, is this really fact? What are quantum computers really do? And that's why I spoke to Jordan Sullivan. Jordan is a tech evangelist for Amazon Bracket at Amazon Web Services, which is Amazon Web Services quantum computing service in the cloud. At AWS, Jordan helps companies and researchers understand and utilize the latest in quantum computing. Previously, they were a quantum architect at SciQuantum, which is a Series D startup that had raised funding, $655 million, to build a commercially viable quantum computer. Jordan studied physics at UC Berkeley, where they did theoretical research in quantum chemistry and superconducting qubits, which is a basic unit of quantum information in a quantum computer. There is definitely a lot of physics, which I did not realize until this interview, that goes into quantum computing. There is a lot of terms, but if you are curious to learn more, I, there are resources as well on quantum computing that Jordan recommends that you can be able to check out. And I've left those links at the bottom of this episode. So if you're curious to understand what the hype is with quantum computers, how they really work, are we there yet to be able to utilize them, then listen to this episode with Jordan. All right, Jordan, I'm so excited to talk to you today. I feel like quantum computing is just one of the most like underrated or like under talked about topics like right now. So I'm excited for you to just kind of share with everyone why it's something that is like so awesome that people should really be looking forward to learning more about and what's to come in the future. Um, so maybe to start with, can you just tell everyone like what is a quantum computer and what makes it unique? So, yeah, I'm, I'm also excited to talk about this. It's, it's my job to talk about this, so I enjoy it. Um, yeah, so basically a quantum computer is a different mode of computation than we typically think of with our traditional computers. So everybody's probably familiar with normal computers. Everything is stored in binary, so everything is a one or a zero. In a quantum computer, you can also have what's called superposition of one and zero because quantum states are weird. Uh, and so then you start to get into other quantum properties like entanglement, which is where if you bring two quantum particles very close together and then you take them very far apart, you can take them to opposite ends of the universe and you measure one property on one of them. Let's say you wanna know like what's the momentum. Uh, you'll instantly know what the momentum is on the other particle, no matter how far away it is. And uh, this is what Einstein actually called spooky action at a distance. And a fun fact about Einstein that a lot of people don't actually know, uh, he came up with kind of a number of thought experience experiments around quantum computing. And he actually thought that they were absurd and that surely quantum mechanics was wrong because it's like, no, that's crazy. Like, we can't have spooky action at a distance. God doesn't play dice with the universe. He did not believe in what? quantum mechanics, despite being like one of the fathers of quantum mechanics. I didn't um, think he was wrong about anything. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's, he was, it's so funny because like his work was correct. Like, 
but he just didn't actually believe in the implications of it. He was like, there's got to be something that we're missing here. But yeah, as far as we know, quantum mechanics is still an accurate theory. So anyway, that's one part. Um, and then the last most important thing is what is called quantum interference. And this is probably the hardest part to understand. But if we think about it, Imagine you have waves on an ocean or just, you know, sine waves, whatever your preferred wave form is in your in your mind's eye. Um, basically, let's say you have two waves that are both like uh, an amplitude that is that's like going up, basically. If you add those two together, you get positive interference and you get one larger wave. But if you have one wave that's going up and one wave that's going down, you bring them together and they both cancel out and you get like flat. Um, so you can have the same thing in quantum mechanics, but instead of like physical matter interacting and like, you know, splashing together like waves on an ocean, you actually get probabilities interfering. So um, quantum mechanics is all probabilities. It's the, it's the language in which it's expressed. And so at a quantum scale, you can't say with certainty that even a particle is in location X or is in location Y. You can only say, here's the probability that you'll find it in location X and here's the probability you'll find it in location Y. And so this is where you get something like Schrodinger's cat, which is like, okay, there's like a 50% chance that in this experiment uh, we've imagined that uh, if you open the box, you can see like whether or not one or the other is true, but it's like 50% of the cat is alive, 50% of the cat is dead because of some like quantum mechanical contraption that they've set up so that this is, this is the outcome. And again, actually Schrodinger also thought this was an absurd idea and surely quantum mechanics must be wrong because like you get that weird implication where you can be in a superposition of alive and dead, but nope, that's just the way that quantum mechanics is. And so, Basically, on the quantum scale, you have interference of different probabilities. And what this means is that um, if you set up your problem right on your quantum computer, you can actually end up, or the way that you want to design your quantum algorithm is so that the, the paths that lead to the correct answer to your problem that you've encoded in your quantum computer positively interfere, like two waves on an ocean coming together and making a larger wave, and that the incorrect solutions to your problem negatively interfere, so they cancel each other out. Um, and this is allowed because the way that probabilities work in quantum mechanics is that they are in the form of waves. Uh, so we call them the probability wave function or quantum mechanical wave function. This is the way that things are described. So. Because of all that fun stuff that you get in quantum mechanics, you can get an exponential speed up over classical computers or traditional computers as we think of them. As long as you are clever enough to come up with an algorithm that can make use of all of those odd quantum properties. And so there is a handful of algorithms we already know about that do give us this sort of exponential advantage in theory. We currently, though, don't actually have the hardware to run the most advanced and kind of world-changing applications yet. But, you know, it's, it's definitely something that's on the horizon. That was, like, so mind-blowing, Jordan. So <laughs> <laughs> as someone yeah. who um, 
didn't really pay too much attention to high school physics. So um, let's see. So we've got it can what's different from normal computers is that you it can be in one and zero at the same time. Yep. We've got that it's able to produce all these different probabilities that um, or a, more of them potentially faster than what a normal computer could. Um, yeah, it, so the bit about probabilities is actually, I mean, probability is everywhere. The, the most important thing about quantum mechanical probabilities is that they can cancel each other out. Um, like typically, like if you're flipping a coin, it's always going to be 50-50. I mean, if, unless it's like a cheat coin, but like it's always going to be 50-50 heads or tails, right? Um, in quantum mechanics, you can end up with if you set up your experiment right, you can end up with situations where the probability of getting heads is actually canceled in like 25% of the cases by the probability of getting tails. And that's really wow. weird. That does not happen yeah. in our like daily occurrences, but this is the way that quantum mechanics works. So like this is the way the universe is just on a quantum scale. We just think it's weird because like we're used to dealing with coins in our hands and we're not used to dealing with, um, you know, the, the decay lifetime of rubidium or something. So even just in that thought experiment that you like, the way you explain that is like, okay, that is something that tangible that people can like literally see and understand. Mm -hmm. So it requires a different level of thinking than yeah. it sounds like most people really are equipped to unless they have a quantum physics background. So does mm -hmm. that mean that really in order to be able to use a quantum computer that you have to understand quantum physics? Yeah, so it's a, I mean, it's a really fair question. And it's one of the reasons why it's so tough to come up with quantum algorithms, because as far as we can really understand so far, well, part of the problem is that the quantum computers that we have right now are very small and very noisy. So the really exciting algorithms that, you know, mathematicians and theoretical physicists have come up with in the past, like, you know, 20 years or so are not able to be run right now. And so one other downside to that is if we kind of think about it in terms of an analogy to classical computing and when really computer programming as an idea was just getting started and you were thinking about programming on the level of boolean logic gates you know uh, nands and knots just writing an algorithm in terms of only boolean logic circuits is really hard if you try to imagine like designing fortnite using only boolean logic circuits like that is just crazy to think about, but that's the level we're actually programming quantum computers at right now. Like very, very low level, um, these levels of, of quantum logic gates, because that's the only way that we've figured out so far that we can actually design quantum algorithms to make use of these properties. Now it may turn out like down the road, there are actually better abstractions that we can use. Maybe we build higher level languages to control quantum computers. And then that in turn begins to make algorithm development more accessible for say current engineers and people who don't have a quantum physics background ultimately i think that's, that's very likely the direction we're going but it's hard to get there now because our hardware isn't really good enough that you can just kind of play around and experiment with the full power of quantum computers 
Wow. Okay. So it's both the hardware and it sounds like because of the hardware, people have to maybe even like back in the earlier days of computers where they had to know um, like much harder to learn programming languages um, compared to now where it's more like English. I mean, yes, there's, it's, it's, it's not that it's like easy necessarily to just pick up a programming language but is is that kind of is that did i get that correct that's exactly correct yeah okay um so i know now now people are probably like hearing this and they're like all right so like julian like why are we talking about quantum computers why are you so excited about them why is jordan so excited about them so what is like then the potential or the promise of these quantum computers can you like share some of these problems that they can be will be able to solve or maybe some of them are being able to solve now absolutely so there are a handful of other problems that have a similar exponential speed up over classical computers and really that's that's the thing that you want to remember about quantum computing for certain types of problems some of which we know about a lot of which i would argue were still to discover you can get an exponential speed up over classical computers in the amount of time it takes to do that computation. And what this means in practical terms is there are problems that we can solve, say in material science, in drug design, anything that is simulating quantum mechanics or simulating quantum mechanical interactions, you can do that exponentially faster on a quantum computer than on a classical computer. And practically this means that there are computations that you couldn't do in the age of the universe on a classical computer that you would be able to do on a quantum computer in a reasonable amount of time. But there's also other, uh, from what I was researching, other exciting use cases. And I, I'm wondering if you, there's more that maybe you've seen in your experience working with companies, like some research I saw, there's someone doing like drug discovery, looking at rare diseases that maybe right now current computers haven't been able to find. So is there any something maybe on those topics or other use cases that you're seeing that are like really inspiring? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one of the, one of the most exciting ones that I did, I've done actually a little bit of work kind of on myself, uh, researching this is designing novel materials. So this sounds like dry, but it's actually really interesting. Um, because for instance, if you wanted to do something like create like a mag like magnetic levitation um, transport from you know New York to San Francisco or any kind of long stretch, um, you need superconducting magnets for that, and basically that gives you magnetic levitation. But the problem with that is that it is very difficult to get metals to superconduct. Um, Superconductors only do that at very, very low temperatures. We're talking colder than the vacuum of space. Um, In some cases, it's like on the few hundredths of a degree below absolute zero. And absolute zero is where all motion (laughs) with all molecular motion stops. So it's like just above that, that's when things start to superconduct. In most cases, there are somewhat higher temperature superconductors that we've discovered now, but they're still like negative 200 degrees Fahrenheit. So like, it's still very cold. Um, And so the kind of holy grail of material science and certainly of um, condensed matter physics is discovering room temperature superconductors. And so what that would allow you to do is build a 
really a, as large a you know transportation network that is entirely frictionless and and that doesn't need any special you know temperature control to maintain and just have basically like free magnetic levitation. I mean, that would be amazing if we could discover material that just did that. Um, and that's not at all with outside the realm of possibility, but discovering novel materials is really challenging because running simulations of quantum mechanics is really challenging. Uh, on classical computers, basically, if you're trying to simulate chemical reactions or anything that involves quantum mechanics, the way that the computational runtime scales with the system size is 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 exponential. So unfortunately, in the if you add like you know go, if you go from like you know four particles all interacting, that's like two to the four interactions. If you go to ten particles interacting, it's two to the ten particles interacting. So the size and the runtime of your computation and the space it takes up doubles every time you add a new interact and a new particle a new interaction so this is why it's hard to discover at least in simulation these new materials because they take really really long time to simulate and then in the lab of course that's even more challenging because then you have to think about actually sourcing all these materials that you might want to be trying to to build something out of or like having different ways of interacting with them like for instance there are some materials that superconduct only under like an insane amount of pressure, like the, the level of pressure of the inside of a planet. Um, and so that's not the easiest thing to do in the lab. Um, they use these things called diamond anvils to get uh, that strong of pressure. They like take two pieces of diamond and they just crank them together to like uh, put a piece of material under a lot of pressure. Um, and they discovered like superconductors by doing that. But, you know, that's not really the most feasible thing to do. So it's much nicer if you can do that in simulation and not have to buy yourself a diamond anvil. Um, and so you will ultimately be able to use quantum computers to discover new materials. And one of those would be really cool if we found room temperature superconductors. Um, so there are really so many other types of materials that you can imagine discovering when I mean, you could think of like, you know, super strong construction materials that like weigh very little, like compared to what we currently know about and um, different ways of engineering matter so that we could actually build totally novel structures. So there's a lot around kind of material science that I find really exciting. And that's an area, um, well, really simulating quantum mechanics is an area that we know there is an exponential speed up over classical computers. So it's very likely going to actually un unlock areas that we previously would not have been able to do and wouldn't have been able to do if we didn't invent quantum computers. Like that's one of the most exciting things to me. Um, there are other areas where we know there's like a quadratic speed up over classical computers, like um, in uh unstructured search, um, which can be, which comes up a lot in computer science, um, and a handful of others. Uh, optimization is one where you can get an exponential speed up. And so clearly with optimization, there are so many potential applications of that. I mean, we've all experienced the supply chain issues the past few years. So if we had, you know, better optimization schemes for that, we could solve some of those problems. Uh, yeah, those are the ones that are kind of top of mind right now. So, yeah, the material science, um, like materials, is that really anything that 
can create like a material. I know that that's kind of like a duh like way of saying it, but like I mean, like from clothes to I don't know, like outfits that I guess astronomers are going to wear. Like, are there specific like material use cases in in mind that you have that? for quantum yeah, it's, computers? It's a, it's a good question. So material science isn't really to do with like textiles in most cases. Um, as far as I know, I don't think it's really used for that. I mean, I guess, I guess I'm not really sure if textiles would be part of material science. I don't think, I don't think it is. Um, if it is, it would be a kind of an edge case. Uh, but generally material science is basically designing um, matter. So it's designing like uh, metals. It's designing wow. like insulators. It's designing basically engineering molecules is what material science is. Um, but on, instead of engineering molecules on like a really small scale to do something like really specific, um, like a, a particular like chemical catalyst, material science is more on the scale of like how do structures interact when you bring like a lot of particles, a lot of molecules together. So it's, it's kind of an intermediate scale between like, um, you know, engineering with just like building things out of steel um, and engineering like on the very, very low chemical level. It's kind of an intermediate scale between those two. So it's it's about designing like, say, better uh, parts to build chips out of. It's designing um, more efficient uh, metals to uh, conduct electricity or ideally superconductors. Um, so really it's interested in materials and you know so types of matter that are unusual um i mean it's not only you know unusual materials but that's kind of the goal in a lot of material science research is kind of understanding what we can do by engineering molecules basically on the on kind of like a, of the scale of like a, a lattice of them are there actually companies right now that are using quantum computers or is it all just like in the future, one day it'll be used? Yeah, so this is a thing that surprises a lot of people, especially when they go to conferences. Um, no, you can actually use quantum computers today. They are available. Like I work uh, at uh, Amazon. I, I work on a service called Amazon Bracket, and it allows you to access different types of quantum computers uh, via the cloud. So there's like a superconducting quantum computer, actually a couple of those, an ion trap quantum computer, um, and, you know, kind of are always adding more. And so you can interact with these devices now, like in the same way that you would if you use any other like AWS service, um, like for computing or any of the other like 200 things that you can do. Um, but yeah, you can do this now and like companies are in fact using them. Yeah. Um, and one customer was, uh, like, yeah, honestly, like we've had a lot of like large companies be interested in, especially honestly at this stage, it's all proof of concept work. It's like, okay, let's identify within our business, what are areas that are very likely going to be amenable to a quantum advantage when we're at that stage so that we can be prepared and kind of quantum ready. Um, and so to, to kind of do this, you want to start getting your workforce familiar with and comfortable with kind of working with quantum computers, working with, you know, quantum circuits, kind of understanding some of these basics. And even if they're not necessarily going to be designing new algorithms themselves, uh, understanding kind of where the lay of the land is, is really, really beneficial. Um, so 
the the thing to keep in mind though is as i've said the current hardware is small and it's noisy and it's not as far as we know giving anyone a commercial advantage in like production level workloads right now and i think that we're probably getting pretty close to that point but it is not going to happen until we have hardware at least in in have hardware no we have hardware it's not going to happen until we have hardware that's at a certain level um and so currently the kind of era of quantum computers that we're in right now is called noisy intermediate scale quantum or nisc so you might hear that sometimes in these conversations and uh, the main thing to know about that is that it is different from fully false tolerant or error corrected quantum computation and once you get into the stage of error correction and if you can scale to more qubits then you can start looking at these really exciting opportunities where you know you can solve chemical problems that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do in like a billion years or something so um it's you know, some people have said that there might be like kind of a smooth transition between NISC era and, and fault tolerance. Um, it's hard to say, but as far as we know, the areas where we think there will very likely be commercial advantage are in this error corrected fault tolerance zone. So what's happening right now with companies is that they're kind of testing out the limitations and capabilities of these current NISC devices on services like Bracket or, you know, others. Um, and figuring out what areas are going to end up being areas where they need to do, say, develop their own internal quantum teams uh, to figure out where they can get the best quantum advantage or, you know, contracting with like consulting firms to figure out, you know, help help them figure out where where quantum is going to be helpful for them, you know, testing out these POCs, these proof of concepts on the small machines and being like, okay, when we have full-scale fault-tolerant quantum computers, here's the switch that I fl uh, flip to transition this workload into a quantum version of it. Interesting. So when you say like that in order to get there, um, it needs to be fault-tolerant, Earlier on in our conversation, you were talking about how quantum computers right now spit out a probability or maybe a series of probabilities. Mm -hmm. So is it right now that the probabilities are really too low or maybe like the, the I mean, if it's like a confidence interval, a confidence score is, is too low, is that, is that how it works? So the, the way that it works is that um, it's, it's, almost right that quantum computers spit out probabilities but what actually happens is that you there's a certain probability of measuring some outcome on a quantum computer and you can only find out what that probability distribution is if you repeat the experiment a bunch of times so it's just about getting good statistics so and every quantum algorithm is a sampling algorithm so you have to repeat it some number of times and that is going to depend on the the type of problem that you're doing and the type of the size of the problem that you're doing um, obviously you don't want the number of times that you have to repeat the experiment to, to be the same scaling as the classical algorithm. Cause then at that point you're not getting any advantage. But, um, the reason that right now it is the NISC scale and we, we don't have fault tolerance is that quantum states, it actually has to do with superposition, um, and the way that particles behave on the quantum scale. So what happens in 
it's the most common type of error is called decoherence. And coherence is just another word for superposition. So um, when you have a coherent quantum state, it is in that kind of floating ethereal space of being one or zero, uh, not one or the other. Um, but quantum states are quite delicate and they can get knocked out of superposition by any number of things, like by a stray cosmic ray from you bumping the table that it's sitting on. Um, any number of things can affect your quantum state and cause it to decohere, so to cause it to fall out of superposition. And when that happens, it's collapsed to only a one or only a zero. And the problem with that is then you're just back to classical computing, right? Like you don't have the ability to use superposition, which is required to do, um, to make use of interference and to make use of entanglement. You don't get any quantum properties if your superposition has collapsed or you have decohered. So in our current quantum computers, basically the hardware is too noisy. There's too, there are too many errors being introduced by the environment or by even, you know, the chips that they're sitting on in order to be able to actually do a computation on those quantum states. And so there, the point about error correction is that if you have a low, a low enough physical level error rate, so like, let's say you're your qubits, and so I haven't said this word, I don't think in the podcast, qubits are quantum bits. If your quantum bits are isolated enough from the environment and are able to maintain coherence for a long enough period of time, then you can actually begin to do quantum error correction. And what's nice about that is that if you're in this stage, then as you scale the size of your system, instead of your errors getting worse, like you kind of might imagine would happen, um, which is definitely what happens when we have NISC devices, like as you scale the size of the device, it just introduces more and more errors because you're trying to have more and more interactions with different qubits together. Um, but if you are at the low enough physical error rate, and if your hardware is good enough, then as you increase the size of your quantum computer, increase the number of qubits, the error rate of the overall computation actually is suppressed exponentially. And that's weird. Um, that is a fully quantum property that's called a that's quantum phase transition, actually, when you go from the stage of, of NISC devices to fault tolerance. And so that's the aim for really anybody who's building a quantum computer. They want to reach fault tolerance. So they want their physical level error rates to be low enough that when they actually scale their system, the errors get lower instead of getting worse. Um, and so that is why current quantum computers are limited because you can't really increase their size very much from like a handful of qubits um, or maybe order of like a hundred qubits uh, before the, your errors just start swamping your entire computation. So it, it sounds like it's um, like we need to maybe have hardware that has more qubits in order to be able to decrease the error rate at a point where it's going to be able for companies to actually be able to utilize it in a way that um, can be, go beyond just for research purposes. That... Yeah, so that, that's, that's almost right. The only point... Oh, all right. That, that <laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> um, basically, the, the, the important point is that increasing the number of qubits, if you just have noisy devices and you don't like change anything about the hardware other than just adding more qubits, 
if you try to do that now, you're just going to get garbage out of your computation. Um, it Because right now, if you add more qubits to your quantum computer and they're all noisy, every time you add a qubit, it just makes it worse. Um, it just makes your noise higher, your error rate higher. And overall, if you do that enough times, then you just get nothing useful out of your uh, computation at the end because you've lost all of your superposition that you needed to make use of those quantum resources. So you've gotten decoherence. So you're basically, you're no longer quantum. You're just, you're just noise. Um, and so, or you're, you're kind of, you've collapsed into classical states. So um, the reason that it's hard to make use of, of quantum computers now is that the, the problem sizes that people have, which are, or that companies have for these commercial sized workloads are much larger than even the, the largest physical quantum computers that we have right now, which again, are kind of on the order of like a hundred qubits. The other piece is that to actually scale to that number of qubits, you can't just you can't just copy and paste what we have already. What you need is to, on the individual like module level, on each qubit, it needs to get significantly higher quality, basically. It needs to get better, but basically the chips need to be, um, it, it kind of depends a little bit on the hardware, like what specifically needs to be improved, but basically you can kind of think about it as getting higher fidelity. Uh, so if you have a signal, you want it to have very high fidelity and you also want it to have very high levels of, um, you know, sensitivity to getting a signal in uh, potentially, it depends on kind of the part of your device. Like overall, you just want to make your chips better, which is based on a number of metrics that are kind of hardware specific because there are actually a lot of different ways that you can build a quantum computer. So the metrics on which you need to improve your qubits in order to scale are going to depend on what specific hardware you're doing. So for photonic quantum computing, it might be that you need, um, uh, in photonic quantum computers, instead of having wires, they have what are called waveguides. So the photons go along waveguides in the same way that electrons go down wires in chips. Um, so maybe in photonic quantum computing, you need your waveguides to be a lot smoother in order to not lose uh, some of your quantum superposition by it hitting a, a lot of walls or like kind of scattering the light. Um, in superconducting qubits, it might be that you need more efficient shielding from like thermal radiation and it might be any number of things for different types of hardware so what you're actually trying to improve that's the engineering challenge around building a quantum computer so that's what basically all of these hardware companies are trying to do they're trying to improve the physical components that you build a qubit out of because when you're low enough uh, on the, the errors that you get from those when your chips are your individual qubits are good enough then you can scale to whatever system size um, while presuming that you've solved other problems that come with scaling. Um, but then like quantum mechanically, you're, you're guaranteed that as you scale your system size, you are getting exponentially suppressed errors, which means that you can scale to the size of quantum computer that is commercially relevant, that is relevant for people actually running production workloads. This is just like so mind-bending and i'm just like really excited for really the potential of quantum computers and it's definitely something that i am going to be watched looking out for more and i'm sure a lot of people after listening to this like as you were saying earlier like i love the term that you use quantum ready so what resources places that do you suggest that someone who's like all right 
I know it's it's a long way. I don't understand the physics yet, um, but it sounds like this is something I want to be able to keep on top of. Um, any resources that maybe you suggest someone maybe to start learning um, or maybe to keep up with really what's going on in this space? Yeah, so it is a, it's a really good question because um, there's a lot of hype in this field. And so sometimes if you just follow the news stories, you can end up with like very skewed perceptions of what's actually going on. Um, and so, uh, yeah, actually having like trusted sources is, is a really good one uh, to have. Um, if you want to kind of keep up on, on news, um, I think the Quantum Insider is pretty good. Um, a really good resource for uh, engineers that was actually written by a few friends of mine from my previous work is called Programming Quantum Computers, and that's by Eric Johnson, Nick Harrigan, and Mercedes uh, Gimeno Segovoya. Um, oh, wow, I totally ruined, mispronounced her last name. Let's try that again. By <laughs> Eric Johnson, Nick Harrigan, and Mercedes Gimeno Segovia. Um, and that is really, yeah, geared toward software engineers. And uh, it's like an O'Reilly textbook. I think it's used in a couple of courses now. Um, so yeah, I recommend that one for, for kind of diving a little bit deeper. Um, yeah, there's so many resources. So I would say like <laughs> the most important thing is like anytime you see a news article that is saying something has happened in quantum computing, just always take it with a grain of salt, I would say, because almost like with anything, I 100% with you on that. (laughs) All the fake news and stuff, but like, especially around quantum, there's like, it's very prone to just, even from seemingly like, you know, reasonable sources, sometimes you get some uh, very um, stretched claims. Um, So keep that in mind. Um, Yeah. I mean, of course, like the the service that I work on and in Amazon, we've got a number of example notebooks that are on GitHub um, that are just called like Amazon Bracket Examples and it's, it's all Python. So you can get started with running your first like quantum circuit and kind of playing around with that and like checking out the SDK. Um, that's, you know, if you want to kind of start diving in and programming on quantum computers. Um, yeah, those are probably the, the, the ones that I would, uh, that I'd recommend. Okay. Um, is there a place that people can go if they want to keep up with what it is that you're working on? You can follow me on, on Twitter. Um, it's uh, at Jord Soul, J-O-R-D-S-U-L-L. Um, or on LinkedIn, yeah, just Jordan Sullivan. That's that's me. Um, you can keep up with what I'm doing. Jordan, you are brilliant. This was like so mind-blowing. I love how in-depth uh, that you just like explain these concepts and there's still so much that... I'm going to be learning about. And uh, so thank you so much for taking this time to share your wisdom on quantum computing. Yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much.